You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. In the, I believe, last uh, three sessions that we've had here, we've uh, detailed uh, the in, uh, the migration to Abyssinia, when the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were sent by the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam to go seek refuge in East Africa in Abyssinia in Habasha. So we, I, I, it took us about three sessions to talk about that in its entirety and detail, only because it is such an important uh, landmark event from the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Um, not to further prolong that particular event in the seerah, but I just wanted to kind of uh, touch on a couple of points that um, we weren't able to get to in the last session. In the last session, we talked quite a bit, in, quite a, we talked in detail about An-Najashi. Uh, the king of Abyssinia and a little bit of personal history about him, where he came from, maybe what were some of the factors in his upbringing that made him such a fair and just and empathetic ruler. And then we also talked about how it is confirmed through the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, through the ahadith that we have, it is confirmed that he was, he had accepted Islam, he was a believer, and he died on Islam and how the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, he the Prophet ﷺ basically um, uh, confirmed the iman, the Islam of Wah- of uh, An-Najashi, uh, the king of Abyssinia, and the Prophet of Allah ﷺ made dua for him and even prayed for him and offered his salatul janaza from a distance just out of respect, love, and admiration, and also because of the isolation that An-Najashi was in. In regards to that, I wanted to mention a couple of things when. Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu, who was one of the um, leaders of the Quraysh who was sent to Abyssinia to try to negotiate the capture and to bring back the Muslims that had escaped Mecca and migrated to there. Of course, Amr bin al-As was not Muslim at this time, but he would accept Islam later on. Amr bin al-As, when he came back to Mecca, it's actually said about him that لَمَّا قَدِمَ عَمْرُ بْنُ الْعَاسِ مِنْ أَرْضِ الْحَبَشَةِ جَلَسَ فِي بَيْتِهِ فَلَمْ يَخْرُجْ إِلَيْهِمْ When Amr bin al-As came back to Mecca, he locked himself in his house and he would not come out and meet or mix and mingle with anyone. فَقَالُوا مَا شَأْنُهُ They said, what's wrong with him? Is everything okay? It seems like he's been traumatized by something. It seems like he's experienced something very difficult. What's wrong with him that he doesn't even come out of his home? And this was a leader. He was a businessman. He was very social and outgoing. So what's wrong with Amr bin al-Asad? He's locked himself in his home and he doesn't come out to the people. فَقَالَ Amr When the news finally reached Amr, that people are talking and asking about you, he said, إِنَّ أَصْحَمَ يَزْعُمُ أَنَّ صَاحِبَكُمْ نَبِيٌّ He said that Ashama, which was the name of An-Najashi, An-Najashi was the title, Negus, it was the title of the position like Pharaoh, King, etc, etc. But his name was Ashama. 
And so he, Amr bin al-Az told the people, he said, in Ashama, that this king that I just visited in Africa, يَزْعُمُ anna sahibakum nabiyun. He thinks, he's convinced that this, that this, uh, this gentleman amongst, in our midst, and he's talking about the Prophet ﷺ, he thinks that the man in question, the individual that has got, his, that has got all of Makkah in a frenzy, He's convinced that this man, Muhammad, is a prophet. That he is a messenger. And Amr bin al-As was deeply affected by that. Not necessarily depressed or anything, but it made him think. And it made him contemplate and reflect on the fact that how is a Najashi so convinced that Muhammad is a messenger? What is it that I'm missing? What is it that I'm not seeing? And you see that deep, that deep thought within Amr bin al-As because that's part of the reason why Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu later on would accept Islam and become a great companion of the Prophet sallallahu and someone who actually furthered Islam into many new lands and areas and was a great leader of the ummah and the Muslims later on. Similarly, it's also said, uh, narrated, Imam al-Bayhaqi, rahimahullahu ta'ala, in his um, book, Dala'ilu Nubuwa, he relates an incident, he says that much later on, uh, some people came from East Africa, from Habasha, from Abyssinia, some, a group of people came and arrived um, in Medina. And when they arrived in Medina, some of the... Um, so when these people arrive, travelers, they basically, their caravan, they arrived there in Medina, the Prophet ﷺ got up and went and started getting food and water and pillows and, you know, he started basically showing some hospitality. Like if a guest arrives, how you just get up and prepare some food and put some food down, give them a little pillow to lean against and you know, get them comfortable. The Prophet ﷺ started doing this himself. So of course the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, being the followers and the students of the Prophet ﷺ, they said, Oh Messenger of Allah, don't trouble yourself, we'll take care of it. Let us allow us to do this, O Messenger of Allah. Please don't trouble yourself. You have a seat with them. And we'll take care of all the hospitality. The Prophet of Allah said, فَقَالَ إِنَّهُمْ كَانُوا لِأَصْحَابِ مُكْرِمِينَ وَإِنِّي أُحِبُّ أَنْ أُكَافِيَهُمْ The Prophet said, no, 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 no. He said, these people, they honored and showed hospitality to my companions. When we were few, when we were oppressed, when we were hiding and we were running, my companions, my beloved Sahaba, they went to these people, the people of Habasha, my people, my Sahaba went to these people. And they honored them. And they showed them hospitality. And today it is my honor and my privilege that I get to serve them today. And so we see that the Prophet ﷺ had this lasting uh, gratitude and appreciation towards the people of Habasha because of how they had treated the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and they had taken care of them. And of course we talked about how the Prophet ﷺ uh, made dua for An-Najashi and made dua for his forgiveness and the Prophet ﷺ even prayed his janazah prayer. And when the news of his death reached the Prophet ﷺ, he also commanded the Sahaba, make sure you make dua for your brother because today your brother in Africa, in Habasha, has passed away. 
And so the Prophet ﷺ had this very strong uh, love for An-Najashi and his people because of how they had taken care of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and they had cared for the companions of the Prophet ﷺ in the Muslim community. One of the things I, I believe I mentioned but I can't really recall clearly. But one of the things that An-Najashi did um, is that whenever he was challenged in public and and you know there were some political controversies later on and there was a lot of you know rumors and whispering and gossip and things about him forsaking christianity because it was a christian kingdom um, that an-najashi had a piece of paper that he had written that you know he had written the fact that i bear witness i give testimony that there's no one worthy of worship but Allah. And Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And Isa is also a messenger of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala placed Isa divinely through his power and his uh, greatness into the womb of Maryam, his mother, and etc. etc. Basically, the aqidah of a Najashi was written on that piece of paper. That made it very clear about the fact that he did not believe that Isa alayhi salam was the son of God. And he was not confused about these issues. He had clear iman, clear Islam. And he had written this on a piece of paper. And what he had basically done was inside of his shirt, he had inside of his clothes, he had made a pocket on the inside of his shirt. And on all of his shirts, on all of his clothes. And what he would do is he would always keep that piece of paper that he had written with his own hand, he would always keep that stash right here on top of his heart. And, and whenever people would challenge him, people would try to confront him and argue with him, he would place his hand on his heart and he goes, this is exactly what I believe about Isa. They would say that, do you say that Isa is the son of God? And he would place his hand here on top of that piece of paper and say, this is exactly what I believe about Isa. And I understand that that's a little bit of almost like a, a you know, take what you will type of statement. But that is something that is permissible even through the Qur'an. The Qur'an talks about the fact that how if somebody fears for their life, then they can say what needs to be said as long as they keep their iman in their hearts. And it's, it's a confirmed fact again from historical narrations that an najashis life was threatened. His, his ministers, a couple of the people that were close to him, he had a servant, a personal servant who was very close to him, who it's also said that also had accepted Islam, along with the Najashi, that some of these people had let him know that there are people in your palace who have plotted to kill you and murder you because they think that you've forsaken Christianity. And so this was almost a little bit of a trick that Najashi had come up with to keep them at bay, but at the same time not compromise his own iman and his own Islam. So that, that, I just wanted to kind of mention a couple of these things as a conclusion to the story of um, the Hijrah to Habasha. Now, after the migration to Abyssinia, after the Hijrah to Habasha, it said that the next major incident that occurred was the acceptance of, uh, of Islam by Hamza radiallahu anhu, Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib radiallahu anhu. Um, Hamza who was the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ and also a milk brother of the Prophet ﷺ. They were very close in age. So it was an uncle-nephew relationship where there wasn't a huge gap in age. And because of that there was more of a you know, big brother, little brother type of relationship. The cool uncle to the older nephew type of thing. And so they were very close. And they were very friendly. And they grew up basically like brothers. 
And they had a very deep connection with one another. I've talked about the detailed story of Hamza radiallahu anhu and also him accepting Islam. I mentioned it earlier because um, I was kind of following the, the, the structure that Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala has laid out in his book Al-Bidayah wa Nihaya, where he mentions the Islam of Hamza radiallahu anhu earlier on where he's mentioning the Islam of some of the early people, the early converts, the notable converts to Islam. I mentioned his acceptance of Islam and his conversion to Islam earlier at that point. However, when you look at the historical... Um, when you look at the when you look at the history of it and you take into account the different historical accounts what we find is that the majority of the scholars of Sirah and the more authentic narrations establish the fact that Hamza radiallahu anhu accepted Islam after the migration to Abyssinia some scholars of Sirah have placed it earlier have placed it earlier, maybe as early as a year and a half before the migration to Abyssinia. And that is part of the reason why I mentioned it there. However, the majority of the historians, the majority of the scholars, and the more authentic narrations do establish the fact that he accepted Islam after the migration to Abyssinia. Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, is one of the younger uncles of the Prophet ﷺ. He was like that cool uncle that everybody has, that's just a little bit older than you. Very close to you in age, you're very close with them, you know, you play with them, hang out with them. He was that type of an uncle to the Prophet of Allah ﷺ. And it actually also mentions that the slave girl that was owned by Abu Lahab, the slave woman, Thuwayba, who had breastfed the Prophet ﷺ, had also breastfed Hamza radiallahu anhu. And so because of that, they were not only uncles, but they were also brothers through this, this woman who had nursed them. So they were milk brothers on top of that. So their relationship was very deep. And <clears throat> it talks about uh, Hamza radiallahu anhu before Islam. Hamza radiallahu anhu was a very, very respected individual. And he, he was respected by all. He was a son of Abdul Muttalib. So of course he had status in Mecca. And, but on top of that, he was just considered like the cool guy everybody wanted to hang out with. Hamza radiallahu anhu was the life of the party, the center of attention. When he walked into a room, he became the focal point of the room. He was just a fun, he was a guy's guy. What we call a guy's guy, that's who Hamza radiallahu anhu was before Islam. So he was just fun to be around. And he was actually very well known for his skill, he was, he was a fighter. He's actually one of the few people in, in Arabia who was renowned for fighting. When he fought in the battlefield, he would actually fight with both hands. He would wield a sword in each hand. And he would fight simultaneously with two swords, ambidextrous. He was actually well renowned for the skill and this ability. So he was a warrior, he was a swordsman, and he was a hunter. He was a hunter. And his hunting trips were very famous, like people couldn't hang with him. He would go out for hunting trips, he would sometimes be gone for like days at a time, sometimes he would be gone for an entire week. He would stray way far off, tracking, you know, uh, whatever animal he was hunting. And he would come back with his, with his, you know, his hunt, whatever he had hunted, his trophies and things like that. So he would come back with skins. And he was very well known for this. So on one of these trips, on one of these journeys, he was gone for a number of days. The Prophet of Allah went to the Kaaba, went to the Baytullah, and he was either coming or going, and he was near the mountain of Safa. He crossed paths with Abu Jahl. 
Abu Jahl saw the Prophet ﷺ was just in one of those moods on that day. He was just looking for trouble. And he started to berate the Prophet of Allah ﷺ. He started to berate him. He started to insult him. Jab him, insult him, poke him, push him. And he got very, like more aggressive than he had ever been before. Just ridiculous, making a public scene and a spectacle. Where someone's trying to walk away and you don't let them walk away. You keep cutting them off. And keep getting more and more vile and disrespectful. And it was like never-ending scene. To the point where other people were like, please just stop already. And he was like, no. And he just kept going and going. And it was to the point where it became a huge scene. And so this one servant, this one slave woman, she saw this and she was observing all of this. Now, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu returned back later that day from his hunt. And he was coming back into town, you know, bow and arrow, strapped up, you know, all geared up, and skins of animals, and just, just coming back into town in a good mood, ready to talk about the hunt, and hang out with the guys, and tell everybody what it was like. And as he's approaching, he's about to reach home, he's right outside of his home. And actually, no, the narrations say that Hamza radiallahu anhu was still a man who was spiritual. He was a man that had a certain, you know, spiritual nature to him. So when he would return back from his hunt, the first thing that he would do is before even going home, he would go straight to the haram with his skins, with his bow and arrows, everything. He would go there to the haram, he would put everything down and he would do a tawaf. Just to kind of enter back into Makkah, to welcome being back in Makkah, and also to just show his appreciation and gratitude for coming back safely from another journey, and you know, expressing his gratitude and appreciation for the hunt and the animals that he was able to kill. So he would do a tawaf. So he was on his way back into Makkah, and everybody starts to see, oh, Hamza's back, Hamza's back, and everyone's like waving, and hey, how's it going, how was the hunt, man, wow, Every, everyone's catching up, talking to him. And this slave woman sees him. And she walks over to him. And Hamza radiallahu anhu was very friendly. He was, he was a fighter, but he was very friendly in nature. He shared that disposition with the Prophet of Allah So the slave woman felt comfortable walking up to him and she says to him, she goes, you know, you're walking around saying hi to everybody, smiling, big old smile on your face, when something so disrespectful has been done. And he's like, what are you talking about? Well, what are, you, what, are, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. And she says that your, your, your nephew, your brother, who you are so protective of, Muhammad, he was just treated terribly today. Like, you know, she wasn't spicing up the story. This was very, very bad. And you'll see in the story, in the narration, why I'm saying it was so bad. She says it was just unbearable, unbelievable what was done to him today. And he says, what are you talking about? Tell me. Who messed with Muhammad? And she kind of starts to tell him the story. Abu Jahl said this, and then he did this, and then he kept saying this, and he kept doing this, and kept saying this, kept doing this. It was just, everybody was watching, everybody was listening. Nobody stepped in, nobody said a word, nobody stopped him, prevented him. And by this time, Hamza radiallahu anhu's blood is just boiling. He's raging. So he goes over to the haram, to the Kaaba, as was his practice. And lo and behold, he walks in and 
who's sitting right there amongst all his homies and his buddies, still kind of gloating and high-fiving everybody about the scene that he had caused earlier that day, it's Abu Jahal. Hamza radiallahu anhu walks up to him, and Abu Jahal is sitting down. Hamza radiallahu anhu was a big old man, he was a towering man. He walks up to him, so Abu Jahal is already sitting down, and Hamza radiallahu anhu standing up and walks up to him and is looking down at him at this point. He's furious, you know you just step up on someone? He just steps up on him. And Abu Jahal looks up at him. And it probably didn't take much. He probably was just kind of like, what? What are you looking at? Because he's feeling big, right? He said, what? What are you looking at? Hamza radiallahu anhu said, oh no. And he, and he just, and the narration says that, you know, the way, the way they would wear a bow is that they would kind of put it onto their shoulder. They would put their arm through it. They would put it onto their shoulder. Hamza radiallahu anhu just basically pulled it off, pulled it back, and bam, came down. As hard as he could. Just straight up just said, mm. just cracked him over the head with it. And narration says literally he started to bleed from his forehead. Like bleeding very badly, like something you would have to go to the hospital and get stitches for. He just cracked him over the head as hard as he could. And he's like, you disrespect Muhammad? You disrespect Muhammad? You gotta deal with me. And Abu Jahl, before he even realized that he was bleeding and everything, he goes, Hamza, you sound like you've left the religion as well. Like he meant this worship of the idols. It sounds like, You sound like you've left the religion as well. And he said, I have. I believe in what Muhammad says. I believe that he's a messenger of God. I believe what he speaks is the truth. You want to do something about it? Deal with me. Do something to me. Mess with me. Come on. And said that a lot of the other people, because you know, he had just gotten physical with Abu Jahl, who was a leader, a lot of people started to stand up and kind of approach him. And Hamza radiallahu anhu started to get into warrior mode. Like it's about to get real up in here. Right? He started to get into warrior mode, and this situation was about to become real. And Abu Jahl says, no, 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 everybody back off. Leave, leave him alone. Da'u ibn Imara. Uh, Abu Imara. He was known by the kunya of Abu Imara. Everyone, uh, Abu Jahl says, Da'u Abu Imara. Uh, Abu Imara. He told everyone, he goes, everybody, leave Abu Imara alone. Back away from him. Leave him alone. And and one generation mentions because Abu Jahl said that everybody back away from him because this could turn into a very messy situation. Y'all are gonna attack him and hit him and he's gonna attack some of y'all and some of y'all are gonna die and maybe you're, you're finally able to get to him and kill him and before you know it, two whole tribes are fighting. So he said everybody just back away from him and then Abu Jahl fesses up. Then Abu Jahl fesses up. And he actually says, دَعُوا أَبَا عُمَارَ فَإِنِّي وَاللَّهِ لَقَدْ سَبَبْتُ إِبْنَ أَخِيهِ سَبًّا قَبِيحًا he said, leave Abu Umara alone because I most definitely did curse his nephew out really, really badly. Like I was really out of line. And narration says by this time, he's literally just like blood down his face. And Hamza radiallahu anhu said, let me know if y'all want to roll. Y'all want to rumble, just let me know. Time and place, I'll be there. <laughs> and he just kind of backed away from there and just kind of walked off. But the narration goes on. You have to understand it was the heat of the moment. And classical scholars have talked about this that 
Not to doubt the Islam of Hamza radiallahu anhu, because you can't. If you know who Hamza radiallahu anhu is, and we'll talk more about him later on, he comes up time and time again. In, in later Meccan period, he comes up again in, later, in early Medinan period. So we'll talk about him again. But if you know even briefly the story of Hamza radiallahu anhu, you know his Islam was amazing. His Islam was true and sincere. He loved Allah and His Messenger sallallahu His heart was full of iman. But you have to also understand that it was, it was a very emotional moment for him. He was defensive of his, of his nephew, his, his brother, somebody he cared about deeply. And so he became very emotional. He, the narration says that he went home. And he started to think about what he had done. And he started to feel very nervous about what he had done. He said, ma sana'atu? Ma sana'atu? What have I done? Do I really believe? Like I love Muhammad, he's, he's, my, he's my brother. I love him with all my heart. But do I really truly believe in what he's saying? And he just kind of doubted himself for a second. And he made dua at that time. Allahumma in kana rushdan faj'al tasdiqahu fi qalbi wa illa faj'al li mimma waqa'atu fihi makhrajan. Oh Allah, if this is true, if this is right, what Muhammad says, then put the truth of that into my heart. Let me be firm in, in my belief about it. And if it's not, then oh Allah, give me a way out from this situation. Because at the same time, he was worried about, I proclaimed this in public. I beat Abu Jahl over the head and I proclaimed it in public while he was bleeding down his face. Like you just don't kind of be like, oh, uh, take back. I'd like to take that back. I'm sorry. Right? I'd like a do-over please. Like you, you don't get to do that. Like I made this public proclamation. So I don't know how I get out of that, but if it's true, which I feel it is, then make me firm. And if it's not true, then give me a way out. So the narration says, فَبَاتَ بِلَيْلَةٍ لَمْ يَبِتْ بِمِثْلِهَا He spent a night and he had never spent a night like this ever before. Because Hamza radiallahu anhu was this confident man who lived life to his fullest. So when he, when he partied, he partied. When he hunted, he hunted. When he slept, he slept. But he said he tossed and turned that whole night just thinking, thinking, thinking. He said finally in the morning, he says that I went to the Prophet of Allah And I said, Ya bna akhi, Dear nephew, إِنِّي قَدْ وَقَعْتُ فِي أَمْرٍ لَا أَعْرِفُ الْمَخْرَجَ مِنْهُ He said, Dear nephew, I've put myself in a position I don't know how to get out of. وَإِقَامَةُ مِثْلِي عَلَى مَا لَا أَدْرِي مَا هُوَ أَرْشَدُ هُوَ أَمْ غَيٌّ شَدِيدٌ He says, and, and this, this matter that I've stepped into, continuing on with it, I don't know if this is good or this is bad. I, I just don't know. فَحَدِّثْنِي حَدِيثًا So talk to me, please. Talk to me. قَدْ إِشْتَهَيْتُ يَبْنَ أَخِي أَن تُحَدِّثَنِي I, I've come here to just listen. I just want you to talk to me. Explain to me. فَأَقْبَلَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ فَذَكَّرَهُ وَوَاعَضَهُ وَخَوَّفَهُ وَبَشَّرَهُ فَأَلْقَ اللَّهُ فِي نَفْسِهِ الْإِيمَانَ بِمَا قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ The Prophet ﷺ sat down with him. And he started talking to him. And reminding him. And encouraging him. And inspiring him. And motivating him. And warning him and laying out the truth for him. 
And by the time the Prophet of Allah was done, Iman had been put into the heart of Hamza radiallahu anhu. فَقَالَ أَشْهَدُ أَنَّكَ الصَّادِقِ شَهَادَةَ الصِّدِقِ And he said, فَأَظْهِرْ يَبْنَ أَخِي دِينَكَ فَوَاللَّهِ مَا أُحِبُّ أَنَّ لِي مَا أَضَلَّتْهُ السَّمَاءِ وَأَنِّي عَلَىٰ دِينِي الْأَوَّلِ He said that I fully testify to the fact that you speak the truth, dear nephew. And explain to me and, and lay out for me, teach me this deen that you, that you were t- speaking of. Because I swear to Allah that I would not exchange. I would not go back to the religion that I was previously following, even if it was in exchange, in return for everything that the sky is over. Meaning everything on this earth, if it was given to me, I would not take that if it required for me to go back to my previous religion. And then Hamza radiallahu anhu basically accepted Islam and joined the ranks of the Sahaba and stood by the side of the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that was a huge wake-up call for the Quraysh. That was a huge wake-up call for the Quraysh because now they knew that the Prophet of Allah sallallahu had an enforcer. He had an enforcer. And so they were already hesitant to take any measures against the Prophet of Allah because of Abu Talib and what Abu Talib had said. But prominent individuals like Abu Lahab and Abu Jahal would still do whatever they wanted to do because they also had some weight to throw on. They said, okay, if Abu Talib thinks he's a big dog, well, so am I. Abu Jahal was a little arrogant. He was a little proud. He said that, fine, Abu Talib, you give your protection to Muhammad, to your nephew, that's fine for all the rest of these scrubs, but hey, I'm a leader too, okay? I'm going to do what I got to do. I'm going to do what I feel like doing. We're in equal footing here. But now that Hamza radiallahu anhu was thrown into the mix, now the game changed a little bit. Because now it wasn't political power versus political power. Now it wasn't like diplomatic relations. Now it's just straight up, you mess with Muhammad, then Hamza is going to come crack you over the head with a bow. So you, you best think about what you're going to do now. Because he's got Hamza in his corner now, and Hamza just don't care. Hamza does what he got to do. And so you kind of have to reevaluate your strategy here. And that was a major landmark moment in the early Meccan history. And this, right around, the, this is probably based around the end uh, of the fourth year or the early part of the fifth year of prophethood. That Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu accepted Islam and joined the ranks of the believers. And that was a huge source of comfort for the Prophet ﷺ. That brought the Prophet ﷺ a lot of confidence, a lot of comfort, a lot of peace and tranquility. And you know, this is something interesting. Because at the end of the day, we have to understand, of course, the Prophet, to the Prophet ﷺ, anyone accepting Islam was a, was, a, was a great moment. And it was something that brought him a lot of happiness. But at the same time, as we've seen time and time again throughout our study of the seerah, the Prophet ﷺ was human. It does not take away from the fact that the Prophet ﷺ was human. And so of course, the acceptance of Islam by his own family members was something that was very beloved to the Prophet ﷺ. And so Hamza radiallahu anhu accepting Islam was something very beloved to the Prophet ﷺ. And it also helped reaffirm their relationship. Because their relationship was always one of Hamza radiallahu anhu almost being like a protector of the Prophet ﷺ, looking out for the Prophet ﷺ, like an older brother does. Like an uncle that's very close in age would. 
And so the Prophet was always used to Hamza radiallahu anhu always being there for him. And it was already shocking enough to the Prophet that five years had gone by without Hamza radiallahu anhu accepting Islam. And standing by the Prophet in Iman as well. And when Hamza radiallahu anhu finally accepted Islam, it was a great moment and a great moment of joy for the Prophet. It's basically related that about three days after Hamza radiallahu anhu accepted Islam, that Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu accepted Islam. So we see that the Prophet made a huge sacrifice, and I talked about this in the last Sira class that we had. The wisdom and the hikmah and the strategy of the Prophet ﷺ in basically exporting a hundred of his own community members, a hundred converts to Islam. Finally, they were in the triple digits. They actually had a visible presence. They were actually starting to become a community. Then to all of a sudden take the majority of that community, a hundred of those people, and send them away because the Prophet ﷺ wanted to protect them. And he wanted them to be able to grow and develop in their iman before subjecting them to too much sacrifice and difficulty and adversity. At the same time, the Prophet ﷺ recognized that the situation in Mecca was worsening day by day. And that a continued confrontation, that if these, these people that were out to oppose Islam by any means at all costs, that if they would continue to see a large number of Muslims continuously growing every day, all that it would do is it would basically embolden them, and it would aggravate them, and it would uh, entice them. It would instigate an even bigger fight. And so the Prophet ﷺ being very, very strategic in his planning, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ said there's no good in just instigating a situation. We have to stick it out here, we have to tough it out here. And that's what, that's what the objective is right now, is to survive. And in order for us to be able to survive, we basically have to bring the heat in Mecca down a couple of notches. Not raise it up, but bring it down, dial it down a little bit. We need things to kind of calm down a little bit. And so because of that, the Prophet also made the sacrifice of sending a hundred believers over to Abyssinia. So, but we see at the same time that no sacrifice goes unrewarded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No sacrifice goes unrewarded. That the Prophet of Allah might have given up some numbers, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him a couple, two converts to Islam, but they happen to be two of the most um, impactful conversions to Islam, acceptances by Islam, acceptance to Islam. And that was the shahada, that was the Islam of Hamza radiallahu anhu and Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. Now to talk about Umar radiallahu anhu accepting Islam, we have to, I feel it's appropriate to get a little bit of an understanding of who Umar radiallahu anhu was. It's important to know who he was. Umar radiallahu anhu was from Quraysh. Um, he was from Banu Amir which was a rival family of Banu Hashim. They were all from the same tribe. So they generally got along, but there was a little sense of rivalry. Because these were the two top families. Banu Hashim, the family of the Prophet ﷺ, Banu Amir. The interesting thing about Umar radiallahu anhu, even in his origins, um, is that Umar radiallahu anhu's mother, Umar bin al-Khattab, his mother, was the sister of Abu Jahl. 
So Abu Jahan, Amr ibn Hisham, was the uncle, the maternal uncle, the mamu, the khal of Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. So there's a very close relationship here. And for the same exact reason, Umar radiallahu anhu had been mentored by Abu Jahal. He had been taught and mentored by him. If, if you recall, we talked about Abu Jahal in a lot of detail. Abu Jahal was somewhat of the diplomatic leader. He was the head of the State Department of Mecca and Quraysh, if you will. He was the diplomatic leader. And he used to kind of manage the relations between all the different families and tribes and kind of discuss issues with other tribes. And he was kind of the public face, the public spokesperson, the Secretary of State for, the, for Mecca and for Quraysh. That was kind of his forte, that's what he was good at. And part, this was also part of the reason that he was so arrogant and prideful as well. But Umar radiallahu anhu, Umar ibn Khattab had been mentored and taught and trained and groomed by his uncle. So I'll talk a little bit about the personality of Umar radiallahu anhu because there are some things about him that are very famous. But I feel that sometimes we don't have an appreciation for the talent. You know, something very interesting that, that from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ confirms the fact when the Prophet ﷺ says, خِيَارُكُمْ فِي الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ خِيَارُكُمْ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ دَا فُقِيُّ That the best amongst you in jahiliyyah are the best amongst you in Islam as long as they develop an understanding of the religion. That the Prophet ﷺ used to take people's talents and use them and apply them towards in a, in a, in a constructive manner, in a, in a productive way. He would redirect them. But the Prophet ﷺ would never you know, make people abandon what they were good at. This is kind of an issue in our communities today a lot of times because we feel we have this perception or this idea or this mentality. Um, maybe it's not so common in the actual community, but I can tell you a lot of times in our work of Islamic education and things like that, um, there, there's, there's a huge problem that we have. The problem that we have is that this culture kind of develops um, that the only way to serve Islam is in an ilm-related capacity. That the only way to serve Islam is to become a sheikh or an imam or a scholar or a lecturer. That's the only thing you can do for Islam. Is just give lectures or teach. When in reality a community is made up of many, many different parts and everybody plays a role. Umar radiallahu anhu, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu have narrated how many hadith? Very few, a hundred barely. And there are others like Abu Huraira, uh, um, uh, you know, Abdullah bin Amr bin al-As, Aisha radiallahu anhum, all of these great sahaba who have narrated thousands of hadith. Thousands of hadith. But Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah, of course you cannot talk about the history of our religion without mentioning their names. They served the role of leadership. They served in that leadership capacity. That's not to say they didn't have knowledge of the religion. But it's important to understand and recognize this reality. And this need within the community. It's very, very important. And so we see this here as well, that Umar radiallahu anhu, it's not like he had no leadership capabilities whatsoever, and then he accepts Islam, and all of a sudden magically in the morning, he's like this phenomenal leader. It wasn't like that. Umar radiallahu anhu is the epic legendary leader that he is, 
Of course, a big part of that is Islam and Iman and Quran and the tarbiyah of the Prophet ﷺ and the precedent that Abu Bakr set. But at the same time, there was a certain amount of natural ability. So as I was saying, he was groomed and taught and mentored by his uncle, Amr bin Hisham, Abu Jahl. That at the end of the day, Abu Jahl was a very skilled diplomat. And so Umar his pre-Islamic job, his pre-Islamic work, his position in the community, was that he was often the delegate that would be sent to actually negotiate the terms or deliver the contract or the message or the terms of the contract to the other tribe. So if, if Amr bin Hisham, Abu Jahl, was the Secretary of State for the Quraysh, then Umar ibn Khattab anhu was his deputy. He was his deputy, he was his assistant. And he used to be sent by, you know, Quraysh, basically by his uncle, Abu Jahl, to actually go and negotiate the terms with other tribes and other people. And that was the job that Umar anhu had. So from the very get-go, he's had a certain knack and ability to be able to talk to people and serve in a leadership capacity and represent his people. Now, part of what made Umar such a skilled leader and representative of his people was that he was very confident, he was very direct and decisive, he was also a bit imposing, and a little intimidating, that was definitely all a part of the mixture. That was definitely a part of the combination there. And that's kind of what gave him his presence. And that's why when he walked into the room, he commanded the respect of everyone. And when terms and negotiations would kind of break down, that's how he would get them back on track. He knew how to, you know, kind of manage people. He was a natural leader of people. When he walked into a room, he became the center of the room. And so Umar radiallahu anhu naturally possessed these qualities and they were being used. But at the same time, without Islam, without Iman, without the nur of the Qur'an, without the tarbiyah of the Prophet and the blessing of the sunnah, this type, these types of qualities, these attributes that I've described, confidence, decisiveness, you know, uh, directness, forcefulness, confidence, intimidation, these types of qualities can also become very problematic for a person as well. Because like I just said, when, when that type of a person walks into the room, they command the room. They already have everyone's respect. They're the center of attention. So if there's no tarbiyah and iman and Islam in place, that can very quickly get out of hand and get out of control. And it can start to lead to um, basically an ego and pride. Someone can become an egomaniac. Their pride, their arrogance can start to get the better of them. They can start to drink a little bit of their own Kool-Aid. And, and things can get a little bit out of hand. And that's, that's, a, that's a part of what also occurred with Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu before Islam. Pre-Islam. In Jahiliyyah. So when you hear about Umar radiallahu anhu being, you know, kind of... Uh, 
Him being, you know, bad news when he showed up and people being afraid of him and him being very imposing. And then we later on read about him basically, you know, consuming a lot of alcohol and womanizing and things like that. In fact, Umar radiallahu anhu says that himself when he talks about his life before Islam. He talks about alcohol and womanizing and picking fights with people and beating up people and things like that. Kind of being an enforcer around town. Well, that was exactly because of this. Because he was a naturally gifted person. A lot of confidence. But without Islam and Iman, there was nothing to contain it. There was nothing to apply it properly. And so Umar radiallahu anhu, without a doubt, definitely socially in Mecca, had this reputation of being a little bit of trouble. But at the same time, in, in spite of being a little bit of trouble, society in, in, in and of itself at that time was very problematic. So what Umar radiallahu anhu was doing really wasn't that out of character when it came to the majority. When it came to the majority, it really wasn't that out of character. But even then, he's a diplomat. He represents Quraysh. And how can the representative of Quraysh be walking around drunk and picking fights and womanizing and things like that? Didn't it make them look bad? To a certain extent, some of the leaders of Quraysh did feel he was maybe starting to become a little bit of a loose cannon. They didn't know what to expect from him. They didn't know if he was actually going to show up or not. But in spite of that, he was just so talented and gifted at what he did. That when it was time for him to go and negotiate some terms with another tribe, he would basically sober up and he'd be like, time to take care of business. And he would go in, come right back out, problem solved. I'll be partying if you need me again. And that was kind of how Umar radiallahu anhu rolled before Islam. And at the same time, of course, his uncle Abu Jahal, definitely because of that, he had preferred status as well. And he was a little untouchable as well in Mecca amongst Quraysh because of his uncle, who was his personal mentor, was none other than Abu Jahal. Anyways... There, we'll probably end up talking about Umar radiallahu anhu actually accepting Islam in the next session, just because it seems like the conversation is getting a little long. What I would like to do here though, real quickly, we, there is one major famous story about Umar radiallahu anhu accepting Islam. And we'll talk about it, that in detail in the following session. However, what's not very well known a lot of times is that Umar radiallahu anhu had what you could call a couple of close brushes with Islam. A couple of close encounters with Islam even before the occasion on which he actually accepted Islam. So it seems like there was a slow chipping away because of naturally of what I said, the type of lifestyle that he was living, the type of arrogance and demeanor and uh, ego and pride that had unfortunately built up at that time in terms of Umar radiallahu anhu, that it's, it's very understandable that it took a little bit of chipping away. One incident that is mentioned in a couple of books of Sirah, and Allah knows best about the authenticity of it. I won't vouch for the authenticity of it, but nevertheless, classical scholars of the Sirah have mentioned it in their books of the Sirah. So I'll mention it here with that disclaimer, that it's mentioned that Umar radiallahu anhu says that one time, he was, um, he was basically passed out. So he had been out all night drinking and partying, and he basically walked into a ma'bad, like a temple that was there for worshiping idols. Um, and he walked into there and he basically laid down and he passed out. And of course it was Umar radiallahu anhu, so normally somebody would be like upset, like well you can't just get drunk and come and pass out in the temple over here, this is where people worship. 
Albeit they worship an idol, but for them, you know, they wouldn't have liked that. But this was Umar radiallahu anhu. So what you do is you basically mind your own business and you do what you got to do and pretend like he's not there. And so he's passed out there in the corner of the temple. And part of the ritual that the people did there with this particular idol was that they would bring an animal and they would slaughter the animal as a sacrifice to that to the idol. And they would take um, the innards, um, you know, all the internal organs of the animal and they would take it out and put it in front of, at the feet of the idol and they would take the blood of that animal and they would soak the idol basically with that blood. It obviously sounds very barbaric and ridiculous and that's part of, you know, of course, the predicament. But nevertheless, this was the ritual that they performed. Umar radiallahu anhu says, talks about how he was laying down there, he was sleeping, and when these people walked in, he kind of woke up, but, you know, he, he, he said, my head hurt so bad, he had such a terrible hangover that he just kind of laid there and was just kind of watching these people. And Umar radiallahu anhu talks about the fact that even before Islam, even before Islam, the worship of idols was something that didn't sit well with me. It just seemed unintelligent to me. And so when these people walked in with this goat, kind of kicking and screaming, dragging this goat in, you know, he says, I was just sitting there watching, laying, laying there, just kind of watching this, thinking like, here, goes these, here, here go these crazy people again. These crazy superstitious people are not going to kill this animal, and they're going to waste a perfectly good animal. Alright, just be and make, a, make for a great barbecue, but they're going to go ahead and waste it on this idol again, with these rituals that they perform. So he said, I was just kind of laying there, kind of watching with one eye open, you know, my head is pounding and hurting, and I'm just watching. And they cut the animal's throat, they split the belly open, they reach inside, and they're removing the internal organs. The animal has been dead for a while now. And he said, all of a sudden, the, a voice started to come out from inside of the animal. And he goes, I was a little out of it. I wasn't intoxicated or drunk. I just was hungover. I had a headache. But he goes, even those people heard it. They all jumped back and started yelling and screaming, got freaked out. And the voice from inside the animal started to say that, that this, this whole ritual business, it's time for this to stop. It's time for all of this nonsense to stop. That the time of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam has arrived. And it is time to go back to the proper original worship of one Allah alone. Basically a dead animal is saying this. And they were all freaked out. And he says that they basically all just left the animal there, half cut open and everything, and they all ran out of there. And Umar radiallahu anhu says, I just kind of kept laying there like, Seriously? And he says, I just tried to forget about this as much as I could. And he says, after some time, it seemed like it just, I did pretty much just forget about it. He then talks about the second close encounter with Islam that he had, which is really remarkable. He says, one day he was at the Kaaba, at the Haram. And he says he was just kind of there, just doing his thing, just kind of hanging out. And the Prophet ﷺ walked in. And he goes, by this time I was aware of what was going on and what the situation was. Of course he had the inside track. Abu Jahl is his uncle. Um, so I was aware 
of what was up. And he says the Prophet ﷺ came and he stood in front of the Kaaba and he said he stood between the Rukn Yamani and Al Hajr Al Aswad. So what that standing in uh, on that side in that direction, what it allowed the Prophet ﷺ to do is when he would pray in this direction, he was praying not only towards the Baytullah, towards the Kaaba, but he was also praying towards Baytul Maqdis, Al Masjid Al Aqsa. So this was the Prophet's method of combining both the qiblas. And this was the preferred method of prayer that the Prophet ﷺ had. So he says he came and he stood up and he started to pray. Now how was the Prophet ﷺ offering salah openly in broad daylight at the haram? Well because the Prophet ﷺ also had generally speaking, occasionally it would be violated, but generally speaking he also had protection from his uncle Abu Talib. And so Abu Talib still commanded enough respect. Of course, he always commanded enough respect, but he commanded enough respect, just enough respect in Mecca to protect the Prophet ﷺ and allow the Prophet ﷺ a certain amount of freedom. So the Prophet ﷺ comes into the Kaaba, into the Haram, and he stands in front of the Kaaba, the Baytullah, and he starts to pray. Umar anhu says that I saw him and I started to think to myself, you know, what's all the big fuss about, man? Like what's, what's, all the, what's all the hoopla about? Like you just want to take him out, you take him out. And if he's got something to say, then let's see what he's got to say at the same time. Remember, Umar anhu is very intelligent. He's a diplomat. He's a leader of men. I mean, he's an intelligent guy. So he says, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me just go listen to what he has to say. So he says he went up behind the Prophet and got very, very close. From behind the Prophet ﷺ. And he said he started to listen to him recite. And the Prophet ﷺ was reciting surah, surah number 69. Surah Al-Haqqah. Al-Haqqah. Mal-Haqqah. Wa ma adaraka mal-Haqqah. He was reciting surah number 69. Surah Haqqah is very powerful. Very powerful. And he said, I was very captivated. I was completely gripped by what he was reading. Like I couldn't move, I just kept listening. And it definitely had a powerful effect on me. But at the same time, that stubbornness was still there. The arrogance was there. So he goes, I thought to myself, listen man, don't get too caught up in this guy and what he has to say and what he's reading. He's just a really, really talented poet. That's what it boils down to. He's just a really, really talented poet. And he says, the second I thought that in my head, the Prophet ﷺ recited the ayah, وَمَا هُوَ بِقَوْلِ شَاعِرٍ These are not the words of a poet. قَلِيلًا مَا تُؤْمِنُونَ Very little do y'all believe. And he said, the second he recited that, it caught me off guard. You know, it's like getting the wind knocked out of you. I was like, how do you know what I was thinking? How do you know what I was thinking? I know, he's a kahin. He's a sorcerer, a magician, a soothsayer. That's what he does. He's into this hocus pocus. And what was the next ayah? Similarly, this is not the word of a soothsayer or a magician or a sorcerer either. Very little do y'all pay attention. Do you heed the warning? Do you understand what's being talked about? And he says, when he said that, now I was completely floored. 
And then the next ayah was Tanzilum mir Rabbil Alameen. Rather, this is something that is being gradually, slowly revealed from the Lord of all the worlds. And then it went further, saying that you think Muhammad is making this up? That if Muhammad was even to have the audacity, which he does not, hypothetical scenario, low. But if, hypothetically speaking, in a, in a you know, the most craziest scenario possible, that if Muhammad ever had the audacity to make up things and attribute them to Allah, لَأَخَذْنَا مِنْهُ بِالْيَمِينَ We would have grabbed him by the right, by the right hand. ثُمَّ لَقَطَعْنَا مِنْهُ الْوَتِينَ And then we would have stabbed him right in the heart. Basically, what it, it's an expression for we would have finished him where he stood. ثُمَّ لَقَطَعْنَا مِنْهُ الْوَتِينَ فَمَا مِنْكُمْ مِنْ أَحَدٍ عَنْهُ حَاجِزِينَ Nobody would have been able to protect him and stop us from reaching him. فَمَا مِنْكُمْ مِنْ أَحَدٍ عَنْهُ حَاجِزِينَ وَإِنَّهُ لَتَذْكِرَاتُ لِلْمُتَّقِينَ Rather, this is a very powerful reminder for people who, have, who are God-conscious, who think of Allah. وَإِنَّا لَنَعْلَمُ أَنَّ مِنْكُمْ مُكَذِّبِينَ We know some of you won't, won't believe. Some of you will deny and call it lies. وَإِنَّهُ لَحَسْرَةٌ عَلَى الْكَافِرِينَ And all that that does is it makes the situation of those who decide not to believe in this, it makes their situation that much more regrettable and remorseful and sad and pathetic. وَإِنَّهُ لَحَقُّ الْيَقِينَ But this is about as real and as true as it gets. فَسَبِّحْ بِاسْمِ رَبِّكَ الْعَظِيمِ So, he says, he read this end part of Surah Al-Haqqa that was literally breaking me down spiritually and mentally and psychologically and emotionally as I was standing there. And he said, I was completely floored by the end of it. And I just walked away from there just kind of like bewildered. Like what just happened? But he goes on to say, it seemed, again, I didn't accept Islam, I just kind of walked away from there and again tried to forget this whole experience. And that leads to the third encounter he has with Islam, with the truth, with the Qur'an. And how that was finally the, the third and the final piece of the puzzle that basically led Umar radiallahu anhu to accepting Islam. And inshaAllah we'll talk about that whole story and, its, and that whole incident and its repercussions and implications. We'll talk about all of that inshaAllah in the following session. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that's been said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallah wa bihamdik. Nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nasaghfiruka wa natawwilaik.